James. Hey, Duncan. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm well. All right, everyone. Welcome to Cloud Streaks, which is a podcast where James and I talk about a topic each week. Uh, normally, it's about a blog or a podcast or you know a book. Um, and this week, it's about how you know poverty can affect people's thinking. Um, there mm. was a blog post that was written by a friend of mine called Ollie Lovell, who is the person who reads more education research than anybody else I know. Uh, he's like an absolute machine at it. Um, so we'll jump into that, but quickly, before we did, I thought I'd tell you my word of the week, this old one, which is nootropic. It's spelled N-O-O-T-R-O-P-I-C. James, do you know what that means? I cannot say I am aware of its meaning, no. You want to guess? Does it um, come to your mind? <laughs> <laughs> nootropic, it sounds uh, physiological. So um, I, as far as I can guess, like it, I'm going to go with something that is uh, nutritional value. I, I don't know. Okay, so nootropic, uh, basically things that help enhance you cognitively. And these Ooh. can be, so for instance, uh, you know, substances, like I don't know, coffee might make you more awake or whatever else it is. Okay. But there's also natural ones. So there's like, for instance, sleep. They say sleep is the best nootropic there is. So, I don't know, a tired Duncan is pretty bad at everything. And a rested uh, Duncan is like barely, barely passable. <laughs> um, and so, this is one thing that we're talking about here. So, stress. And so, basically, if you have stress about money, things are worse. And stressing, so stress is like a negative nootropic. Mm. And so, you want to set up your environment to have ideally low stress. Um, and I'm not saying that you can always do that, but sometimes you can. And so... Yeah, I talked to some people that work about nootropics this week, and they thought I had made up a word, but I haven't. <laughs> well, I was close. Nutrition for the mind, I guess yeah. you, could, you could argue a nootropic is. Mm-hmm. All right, so here's a quick part from this article. Let's play spot the difference here. Here are two very similar questions. Your car is having some trouble and requires $150 to be fixed. You can pay in full, take a loan, or take a chance to forego the service at the moment. How would you go about making this decision? The next one is your car is having some trouble and requires $1,500 to be fixed. So the difference is between $150 to $1,500. So a bunch of people did a study on this. And what they found is that for people who had financial hardship, i.e. were affected by the difference between $150 to $1,500, where they couldn't afford $1,500, what happened is there were all these flow-on effects to those individuals' cognitive functions. So, for instance, they measured people at school and whether they could actually get results done. And they've done a whole lot of parallel tests for people for post-school as well. And one thing I think they showed that if you are under financial hardship, i.e. stress about money, that your IQ is 13 points lower. And so it's about one standard deviation. Now, IQ is just sort of one measure and some would say not necessarily a very good one. But on all the different tests they could do, so whether it was recalling things or doing new stuff, if you were financially stressed your mind worked significantly worse. And so I thought this, you know, is very interesting and also, in hindsight, not, not exactly that groundbreaking. <laughs> um, so for me, you know, stress pretty much makes everything worse. Um, mm. And they say if you're stressed, you'll either come out in poor mental health or poor physical health. Mm. And for a long while, I didn't realize that my headspace, my mindset could, for instance, affect my physical health. But there's heaps and heaps of studies that are about this. Yeah, so I think there's actually um, one really um, key element from this piece of research that um, is worth calling out here. 
Uh, and that is clarifying that this is not something that's like a base level uh, effect on a person individually in the sense that if you are um, like poorer or in poverty, you are, um, you know, you perform worse on cognitive tests. This yes. is someone who, whether they are in a state of poverty or whether they um, have um, come lots out of, of that money. state, yeah, lots of money, then what that same person, their cognitive ability changes. So, like, um, so to give an example, they did this test with farmers um, before and after a harvest. So before the harvest, the farmers took the test and they corrected for any kind of bias. And it wasn't like the harvest was a surprise to them. They knew exactly how much they were going to get from it. And when they took the test after it, um, they performed markedly better. So this is like for you as an individual, how your relationship or your cognitive awareness around your financial situation actually affects your ability to think. Um, so I just wanted to call that out because I think that's actually quite pertinent um, to us as individuals and in, um, being aware of, like, uh, like you said, Duncan, like, you know, simple environmental factors or you know, negative nootropics can have a significant effect on our ability to simply think, which is a really interesting thing. Completely. So I suppose the way I might put this is you might be wealthy, i.e., you know, necessarily about to run out of money, but you could be under financial stress. Mm. Um, for instance, I don't know, you're, you're worried about whether or not you're going to be able to afford to pay, you send your kids to a private school or not. And if you can't, then they have to go to a public school. I'm not saying the public schools are bad, but that might stress you out significantly. Right. And then your cognitive performance goes down. So right. this wasn't to, poor people have less cognitive things. You could also be poor in mm. terms of how much money you have in the bank, but not have financial stress and work well. So, you know, mm. so it's basically... That what they were able to do, it was easier to test, was basically financial stress means you were less cognitively able. And mm. doesn't necessarily mean if you're poor or wealthy, you can be financially stressed in either way. Obviously, mm. probably people who have less money are probably facing that circumstance more often than people who have more money, all else equal. But it yeah. was about them being financially stressed. Yeah, I think it's also helpful. Um, I really found it beneficial looking at, so what do we mean by stress here, right? So Dr. Hans, um, oh my God, I'm going to go. Go, go, go. I don't want to say it. Sell you? Do it, do it. Sell you? Sell I? Go on, what's he have to say? Uh, anyway, he's the godfather of stress. He was the first um, person who was a psychologist to study this. Um, oh, really? And so what he um, so what he um, he termed stress as changes represent our body attempt to cope with the demands imposed by illness or injury process. Right. So it's basically environmental changes, and so that is our body's attempt to cope with those environmental changes. Um, and so that's what stress is. Uh, and then. On top of that, you can talk about these elements of, well, stress is not good or bad. It's just a reaction. But then you can have good stress or bad stress um, or otherwise known as eustress or distress. Yeah. Yeah, so I thought I'd jump into that. Um, so I sort of segment things into two different types of activities. Some where the goal is to have zero stress and some where the goal is to have like a healthy stress. So there is what they call... No stress, eustress, which is good stress, and distress, which is bad stress. So eustress as in like utopia, the same bit, and then distress as in dystopia. Mm. And so, for instance, if you're working, um, you're probably not going to have no stress, but there's actually 
a good amount of time where you have a bit of pressure on, but it's not pressure that's counterproductive. It can actually be productive. Mm. And then there's times, I believe, you know, they say for, you know, machines, downtime is a bug, but for humans, it's a feature where you want to have no stress at all, where the goal is to relax, i.e. no stress. Mm. So stress isn't necessarily bad 100%. Bad stress is bad. And that this can come from many, many places. Yeah. Yeah. So right, exactly right. So, um, you know, examples of distress, um, you know, being things that you're in a state of unpleasantness or um, you're perceived as beyond your level of control. And that's kind of what I think is really um, important to make a distinction here that is there a separation or can we have a clear separation between what is instinctual like in terms of what happens in your limbic system, in your body's response to uh, the outside environment, and your cognitive ability to disassociate yourself from that? So what I mean by that is that so you, um, the first step is recognizing that you're in a state of stress, and that's easier said than done. And I think there can, a lot that can be said about not realizing that you're actually stressed. Um, but when you ask then stress, how do you approach that or how do you deal with that? Uh, and so one of the um, things I really am drawn to is uh, the, uh, the quite stoic teaching of the optical is the way. Uh, and if you ever heard of that, it's an amazing book um, written by Ryan Holiday, who talks about looking at all of your uh, adversities as opportunities. And that's probably a way that you could take something neutral as stress and then decide to put it in a position of eustress rather than distress. Yeah, um, this is getting into, I think, one of the points we were sort of talking about. So there are external uh, stimulus, if you want to call them that, but then how you respond to them is partially up to you. Now, it doesn't mean that you can always mind over matter anything, um, but you can make this, I don't know, into something which you, you, know, you think is going to end the world and it's never going to be stopped or it's never going to you know, actually be solved. Mm. Or you can think, okay, you know, how we deal with this. So one of the things I say at work to people, um, we're not doctors, nobody's going to die. <laughs> and so what this means is there's no reason that you need to contact me outside of work hours and there's no reason I need to contact you outside of work hours. Mm. And that if we don't get it done today, that's not great. But we can get it done tomorrow. And so for, for better or worse, I think that I have been really good at stressing more than is necessary in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think that I see other people like that as well. So I think part of this is external, but also part of it is how you choose to respond to it. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and the other thing is realizing that, um, you know, in from a biological function, this is an adaptation that was built for survival back in the Paleolithic era, <laughs> when we were, um, you know, suit, more suited to avoiding like charging herds of buffaloes or a physical fight over food, rather than dealing with the more mundane elements of incessant ringing of cell phones or computers crashing, so to speak. So it's exactly the same physiological effect, um, but the, the environmental causes of those are uh, you know, significantly different in their magnitude. Um, and so this is something uh, that um, they actually found more in the research pieces that they did. So what happens when your body goes into a state of stress um, is so you go into the fight and flight mode um, in the middle. So, sorry, there are three stages. There's fight, alarm. Fight, or freeze. Oh, sorry, go on, yeah. fight, fight, flight, or freeze. You're right. So there's, there's three stages. There's alarm, there's adaptation, and then there's exhaustion. 
right? So when you, in the immediate awareness of there's a change in environment, you go into that fight, flight, or freeze mode. Um, but, you, you know, so immediate physiological effects happen. Heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up. Um, your breathing quickens, um, your muscles tighten. But then there are other areas. So you, like things like your, your sexual and immune organs are suppressed. Um, and so this is not a sustainable state to be in. But the problem is, in, um, in the old days, can I call them the old days? <laughs> this was a very short-term thing. Like, oh my God, there's a Jaguar there. Quick, get to safety. Ah, problem's gone. Whereas in the new world where these are more insipid and insidious types of stresses, we're in this state of alarm for longer periods. So it's actually affecting our bodies. And it's because it's affecting our bodies, it's affecting our minds. And I think this could actually be one of those reasons why um, they're now seeing this changing cognitive ability um, due to things like financial stress. Yeah, um, I don't know. So, so what James, I think, says, I, I, I understand the same. But basically... Stress makes everything worse. There are heaps of, or distress, uh, studies yeah. on this. It makes okay. your physical health and your mental health worse. Mm. It means you learn less, you know. It means you're less creative. It means you're less patient. You're, you're less enjoying life. You're less enjoyable to be around. And so this isn't some sort of, you know, ah, oh, you know, a bit stressed today. Like, it is going to shorten your life. It is going to make it worse. It is going to make you, you know, more unwell, both mentally and physically. And so... What I think you sort of need to sort of figure out is, well, are you stressed? And then how do you think about mm. trying to, to do this? It's not just, uh, you know, whatever the circumstances happen to be around you, therefore you will be stressed or not. I think you can sort of look at this. Yeah. And so one of the ways that I sort of looked at this is there's actually um, tests. And so I've done these things. And so, for instance, you can do like a saliva test where they track your cortisol during the day and you can get blood tests where they look at things like your testosterone, which is one of the markers typically of stress. Um, and they also can do hair tests, so they can t measure how much cortisol was in your hair. And it's kind of like they go through ice cores and they can see the different seasons. So each centimeter of your hair, your hair apparently grows a centimeter a month, and they can actually wow. take this stuff. And so then there's also a thing called the DAS test, which is depression, anxiety, stress test. It's like 40 questions online, just Google it, it's free. Hmm. And I did these things um, and so I thought that I wasn't stressed um, maybe two, three years ago. And these things came back as like, you very stressed. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, this, this is, this is um, you know, not right. And so what I had called um, stress was pressure. So basically, I wanted to get as much done at work as I could. So I pushed myself as hard as I could. Mm -hmm. And I called this pressure and I was proud of how much I could push myself. I didn't think it was stress, but what my body called it was stress. doesn't matter what my mind decided to call it. And they say yeah. that, you know, your body can't lie, but your mind sure as hell can. And I've found that my mind is very good at lying to me and letting me believe whatever <laughs> I feel that I think it should want to say. Yeah. Um, and so just to sort of round this out really quickly, I used to push as much as work to get as much done as possible, uh, pressure. But now I try to be as calm as possible. And I think calm means creativity. Calm mm. means you put one foot in front of the other rather than running around and expending unnecessary energy. Calm means you enjoy work. Calm means mm. you're enjoyable to be around. So I'm literally trying to have the total opposite modus operandi. Mm. And so, yeah, if you haven't, I would go and consider getting these tests done just to see where you're at. Yeah, I, I just want to explore this particular area further because I like um, for me personally, so uh, Duncan is on a very considered uh, personal development journey here. Oh, um, <laughs> well, it's I realized that I was going in the wrong direction. Well, I said considered. I didn't say whether it was successful or not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to, yeah. Um, but the, the element here is um, 
sometime in the recent past, uh, you, Duncan, had an epiphany that um, it wasn't just about um, output, 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 or maximize output. It was now you have to look after the input or put it in another terminology of yours. Uh, downtime of a computer is a bug, but for human beings, it's a feature. Um, and so seeing you on this trajectory is really, really um, like, like insightful in a way because this is looking at someone on their own personal journey to see how they are responding to things that originally were taxing your body. Like you said yourself, like you, you thought you were putting yourself under pressure and you thought you enjoyed that. But then you soon learned that that's actually not an optimal state to be in. And that if you really did want to um, meet your original goal, which is to maximize out, well, let's say let's say maximize outcome because that's actually different to output. Um, you need to take care of the first half of the equation, which is your input, which is uh, making sure your body's not in a constant state of uh, alarm or even um, exhaustion, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. Um, so for me, where, where this really came from is. I was sleeping increasingly worse or less well. And so basically I'd go to bed as an example and I wouldn't go to sleep for three hours. Or I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd be awake for four hours lying in bed. And then I'd be really tired at work. And so I, that didn't used to be the case. I used to be very good at sleeping. <laughs> I used to say I was a sleep expert, but the truth is I just crap at staying awake. Um, and this had changed fundamentally. And then I went and spoke to, to people about this and they're like, you're stressed. And I was like, I'm not stressed. What are you talking about? And so I basically put this pressure upon myself. So this is something I chose. I opted into. And mm. that what I realized is that this I did this because I thought it was the best way to get as much done possible. And I wanted to do as much because I thought that what we're doing at work is important for the world and I wanted to try to do a good job. Mm. But I realized I was going about it in the complete opposite way that mm. I should. Mm. Um, and so instead of pushing myself to go as fast as possible, I should try to be as calm as possible. And because I had chosen this, I didn't call it stress. I chose this. You know, I put as much on my plate as possible. I went as hard as possible. It, you know, it was like a badge of honor in some respects. Um, <laughs> and and I, yeah, so so I didn't think of it as stress at all because it wasn't. It was a, it was an internal chosen thing. Yeah. And it took me not sleeping well and seeing all my cortisol levels and all my hormones out of whack and then doing this DAS test and getting stress like off the charts mm. to, for me to be like, hold up. Maybe you're wrong. <laughs> Your body says you are stressed. Everything says you're stressed. The doctors you spoke to say you're stressed. And then it took me a while to sort of embrace that. And now in hindsight, I was. Like, I wasn't unhappy. This is interesting, right? Mm. So the stress doesn't necessarily mean unhappy. Like, I was the happiest I'd ever been. But my body wasn't operating as well as it could have been. So yeah. sleeping at night meant I was tired at work. If I was tired at work, then I got more cranky. And then I was less creative and all that other stuff, right? Yeah. And so... What I realized is that I wanted to change the way to actually get more done. And it's also more enjoyable, um, yeah. I found. Being calm and or at least attempting to be calm is 10 times more enjoyable than being like, faster, faster, come on, let's go harder, 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 you know. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so I think what we've done here is, so um, from the outset, uh, this research has established that um, particular stresses on your mind can affect your cognitive ability. At least that's what um, I think Duncan, you and I have taken away from that. And the next step is coming to the first point of realizing whether or not you're actually in a state of stress. So to, to um, your anecdotal example, Duncan, like you thought you could actually lie to yourself, but your body can't. And so 
it's about getting yourself to a position where you can actually identify that your body is in a uh, altered state where it's going through these conditions that we consider to be stressful. Um, so I think the next thing is, so what do you do with that re- once you have that realization? Right? Can, can we, A, determine whether this is something that we um, find to be categorized as eustress or distress? Or, and in addition to that, or just as another dimension, can we utilize this awareness to help ourselves grow? or grow in a way to get ourselves out of the state of stress that our cognitive abilities are no longer affected by it? I think the answer is yes. Um, So one of the things that I look for is third-party stress signals, because if I ask myself, I'm not necessarily, I don't trust myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the first thing you're trying to figure this out. So so how do I do this? I I systemically, you know, take um, biomarkers, um, which is like blood tests, et cetera. But on a sort of shorter thing, if I'm not sleeping well, it's a sure sign that I'm stressed about something. Yeah. Um, for me, I listen to podcasts and audiobooks, you know, in the morning. And if I'm struggling to pay attention to them, it's because my mind is stressed. For instance, I can also see that, like, you know, for instance, I'll go and catch up with a friend. And if I'm easily irritable, and I can see this, I'm stressed, right? Yeah. If I'm also not joking, so for instance, I will naturally just have a laugh or, you know, poke, you know, some fun at something at myself, whatever at work. But if I'm stressed, I stop doing that. You become um, ter- terse, Duncan. Terse, Duncan. Yeah, yeah. Um, and another one, so stress um, means that um, your testosterone typically goes down and then your sex drive goes down. So, for instance, if I have zero sex drive, um, then I know that my body is stressed. So, but basically, what I've been doing is this. So, these are for me. And with one other thing, so basically at work um, – I have been building what I call counselor chats and James and I have counselor chats too. Um, but there are some people who I think I have very good relationships with. And I think it's their job because I've found that I'm no, I'm not very good at seeing if I'm stressed myself to tell me if I am stressed <laughs> and if I'm acting in a way that is, you know, of showing that I'm stressed. So mm. I've got people around me that can sort of point this out and I've come to see, or believe that their ability to see this is much better than my own ability. And so then if you know you're stressed, then you just have to figure out what the root cause is, not approximate cause or root cause, but you need to know if you are stressed or not. So I wonder if you have any third-party stress signals, James. Um, So I have the most um, effective third-party stress signal that I'm aware of, and that's called a very loving partner (laughs) 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 who puts up with all of my... So uh, to your point, Duncan, like I am blind to my own signals. I I can't... um, objectively observe myself in a way that can say like my state of being has been altered because I am in an altered state cognitively. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of those key signals that uh, my partner happily points out to me is when I'm able to concentrate or be engaged in whether it's a conversation with her or with people um, around us, so to speak. Like um, I think, I don't know if we talked about it here, Duncan, but you and I have in counseling sessions, where I can uh, err on the side of aloofness or mm. um, being easily distracted. And that's because my mind is going through a, you know, a number of different uh, factors from the day or considerations of the future, blah, blah, blah. But they come, they're, they're all baked in um, a state of stress because I'm not at a state of calm. Um, so mm. she'll call those out when they're occurring. Um, and then that, that brings me back to the present. It brings me back to... Um, realizing, you know, I'm doing something that's outside my normal rhythm of behavior, 
and that's likely due to being in a state of stress. So I, I have a very, very loving partner who helped me do that. Um, I will say that I also have a very cool technological device strapped to my wrist that does give me uh, feedback uh, on things like my heart rate. So I can tell when my heart rate has been increased uh, you know, proportionally over the last couple of uh, hours or so. Um, and that gives me an instant bit of feedback as well. Uh, it also tells me my heart rate goes below 40 at night time, which I'm told is a uh, cause for concern. But uh, maybe we'll just uh, put that under the, sweep that under the rug and forget about that one. Yeah, so um, there's sort of two categories of things. I think you need to figure out if you are stressed. <laughs> um, and at least for me, the best way is to have signals tell you. You've also got to try to you know build your own internal whatever you want to call it, compass to know if I am stressed or not stressed. And hopefully you need to calibrate it so that if it's telling you you're stressed, it's, it's a good signal, it's not a bad signal. What I was sort of saying is that I'm very good at telling myself I'm not stressed when I actually am stressed. Um, so that's this first thing. And then well, there's two parts that I look at this after this. One is how do you have low stress across the whole sort of, I don't know, ecosystem? And then are there individual things that are stressing you up? And so... I sort of talk about the ecosystem side. Um, the first one to me is, do you have enough downtime? Like we're talking about relaxing. And I think that can be by yourself um, or that can you have friends, that, you know, or a partner that's doing this. Um, but then you can also do things like meditation. Uh, I think that's one of the key things that I get from that is it's a way to de-stress. And then also, which James sort of talked about, you know, the obstacle is the way, which is stoicism. And so there are certain mindsets you can cultivate. Um, so one of them is, you know, not expecting things to be too good or stoic, you know, but the things that, you know, I can control, I should worry about those. And the ones I can't, don't worry about them. And then also having gratitude. So those are sort of the sort of core things that I do, um, you know, at a, a sort of ecosystem level. And then I can talk about when individual things happen. But I wonder, James, do you have any ecosystem things that you do to try to lower stress? Um, yeah, so I think definitely... To your point, there. Well, um, I guess there's two main areas. So the the environmental factors, like how can you change your environment? So can you remove yourself from the stressful situation, uh, or can you do something to resolve it? And then there's the internal work that you can do. Um, for examples, like meditation, that um, you've already given as an example as well. Um, but I really like so environmental is kind of fixed for me, especially as a, um, a budding young parent. <laughs> um, I can't make my children grow up faster despite my best attempts. Uh, they are very, very energetic and very, very um, lovingly demanding, um, uh, you know, as required for a um, one-year-old and a three-year-old. Um, so you are basically thrown into that. Um, and I am definitely more than happy to be thrown into that, uh, but, you know, willingly type of way so my environmental factors outside of an incredibly relaxing commute to work every single day where I can do some mindfulness exercise okay. is more or less fixed so what I like to focus on is the internal side and focusing on things like my mindset and so your example Duncan about stoicism I find very um, pertinent to being able to I guess disassociate how I approach the physiological state that I'm in in that moment right so case example is like in the book, the obstacle is the way, right? The obstacle is, a, is an impediment or a challenge or something that is causing you great um, challenge or discomfort. But if you look at that, not as an adversity, but as an opportunity, um, I honestly can see that that 
does have a physiological change to my body and how I choose to approach that particular challenge. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. It's one of the points that I wanted to bring up. Um, so Martin Seligman um, is one of the people that really push positive psychology. Uh, mm -hmm. He's like a professor at UPenn, which is, I think it's an Ivy League or at least a very, you know, respected university on the east coast of the US. Um, and what he talks about is post-traumatic stress versus post-traumatic growth. He talks about a lot of things, actually. Mm. And one of the things that they took to the US Army was some people go through a stressful thing and at the end of it, they've got post-traumatic stress. So, you know, it's not good outcome. And others come through and they get stronger for it. Mm. Um, and so this is what Nassim Taleb calls anti-fragile. It's not just that something stressful, is you've survived it. You're stronger because you've gone through it. And I've forgotten the exact stats, but there was a certain percentage when they looked at people that had been in like Afghanistan, etc. And some of them came out stronger through the, the adversity and some weaker. And a big part of this was they thought due to mindset. And he took them the studies. So this is not someone who hasn't you know, done their sort of due diligence. And the US Army implemented this. And they're typically, you know, this is not, so, you know, I don't know how many people are in the US Army, but lots. <laughs> um, and so this is about mindset. And I don't know the exact details. And I'm sure there's some parts of stoicism, but it's like, look, some bad stuff's going to happen. But how you, you know, respond to it can affect whether this is something that you, you know, haunts you for years to come or, you know, possibly your whole life, or whether you can like actually see what is in here that can help me be stronger. Mm, um, mm. So they say depression is worried about the past and anxiety is worried about the future. If you can affect how you think about the past, it then affects how you think about the future. So basically, there's a lot of studies on this and Martin Seligman's written a lot of books. So he's, they're yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, no, you really brought up um, a, a really exciting point that I also um, like I'm really drawn to. And it was, it's talking about so the psychological effect of, um, of uh, the people in the army or more, uh, more um, I guess, considered prisoners of war. So, for example, um, so Viktor Frankl, who was a prisoner of Auschwitz, wrote on his time there. Um, uh, it was a book, I think it was called Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's an incredible, incredible story of survival. Uh, and it talks about um, creating a clear delineation between those who survived and those who didn't. And everyone thought like when, when, when asked about this and when um, people would talk about this, everyone thought that it was a clear cut um, delineation between optimist and pessimist. You know, if you're an optimist, oh, we'll get out tomorrow. It's going to be okay. Um, blah, blah, blah. Versus the pessimist is like, oh, we're stuck in here. We're going to die. Life is, you know, pain and torturous. Um, and what they found very quickly was that the optimist were the ones who died the soonest. Um, and it wasn't, um, so Viktor Frankl's mindset wasn't about pessimism um, by way of contrast. It was one about realism. And by realism, it was accepting your reality and going about it day by day. So like, I think um, he points out in the book, like, um, there was a, himself and there was a small group of them who all banded together uh, and there was also another um, uh, uh, army general, I don't know if it was McMaster, who had a similar experience in prison of war camps in Vietnam, where they were uh, in, in captured and, in, um, you know, and tortured for a very long time, but their mindset was very stoic-like in the sense that they adhered to the reality that they were um, positioned in, but they also had a very, very consistent way of making sure that they just focused on the, getting through the day, and that's it. 
Yeah, um, if you haven't read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, it's like one of the most famous books of the 20th century, I understand. It's not very long. Um, it's not it's not exactly the happiest read because some pretty <laughs> bad stuff happens at Auschwitz, but um, I would highly recommend it. I would characterize it slightly differently to how James did. I think this is actually a Nietzsche quote. For the man with any with a why, they can understand any what. Mm. And so it wasn't optimists versus pessimists. It was that there were people in there, for instance, Victor Frankl, who was like, I want to get out so I can write. So he was a psychologist, I believe. And so part of what he was doing in there is seeing humanity in circumstances which hopefully people don't need to ever experience again. But he, he you know, he, he could see certain things. And he's like basically writing this book. And he's like, I want to see my family again. I want to write this to give it to other people. And so he was seeing really bad things. Mm. And it wasn't as real as like every day is going to be crap. He had a why, which was I'm going to write this and I'm going to get out there. And so it wasn't optimists. So the ones who were like basically they said died of a broken heart almost. It was like yeah. what happened is they, they – optimists, I think it's the wrong way. It's like we're going to get out by Christmas. It's not optimist. And then it didn't happen. And then it broke their spirit. And so their why was, I'm getting out by this date. And those dates kept coming and going. And so this is another example um, of, and there's heaps of studies on this, like stress equals bad mental health outcomes. But if you have, in effect, given up on life, um, then your body kind of gives up too. And so your mind affects your your physical health. And this is something that I was, for a long time, just was like, no, no, mind is like a machine. My body is a machine, you know? You, mm. you, know, you do this and it does that. But your mind and, and your whether you're, I don't know, belief in yourself and other things and will to live is, is strong, <laughs> you, you will get it. So it wasn't so much optimist pessimist. It was more people who had a broken heart or gave mm. up hope they would get out. And, and that if once you had hope or had a reason to, to persist through, you know, what has got to be some of the worst conditions, you know, of, you know, anyone could ever go through, yeah. were able to survive much more. Yeah, right. but that's a really good, um, I guess, anchor point for how you can do internal work for whatever stress that you're going through in a particular instance, like making sure you have a clear why, um, because that will help, I guess, physiologically, but also cognitively, you press through, press through whatever, what, the what of what you're going through, I guess I should say. Um, another, uh, I guess, particular model, um, or mental model, <laughs> um, that I like to <laughs> apply is the abundance mindset. So why do I think this is really, why do I really believe this is relevant here? It's because, so to go back to the original study, it would be based on... It's abundance versus scarcity. So there's sort of two sides. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Do, you ever, so, do you think the world is abundant or do you think the world is scarce? Yeah. Um, and I really want to make sure we tie this back to the original study because it, the study was based on your financial situation. Um, or Duncan pointed out your, uh, I guess, your personal belief of your financial situation. Like you, Whether you, you were stressed about money and you can be yeah, stressed yeah. about money. So you, you can be poor times. and happy or rich and stressed, right? Yeah. And so that kind of alludes to this, um, you know, inroad for having an abundant versus a scarcity mindset. And I think it's really important because if you have a scarcity mindset, then that almost fixes you in that state of stress because you don't really have this, um, I guess, clear path to getting yourself out of it. Whereas um, with an abundant mindset, it gives you, I guess, the tools for you to see how you can build yourself up and out of whatever um, stressful situation you're in. Yeah, um, I think what we're sort of seeing here is that we're sort of talking about this, that you, you, you know, it's not just the external things that affect you. How you think about things with your mindset 
is super important. Um, and so an example of sort of stress at school, so basically stress of any kind, whether it's because, I don't know, money, or whether it's because you're, you know, you're going home and there's abuse at your house or something, or whatever else it is, you know, you're being bullied at school, or, you know, just on and on and on is, is not good. Stress can come from many places. Money was just one that they were able to sort of pinpoint more easily, so that some of the studies were around this. Um, and so your mindset makes a big difference. And so one of those things at sort of school, and this is one of the things when you speak to teachers, students' view of themselves in their head is, is one of the single biggest things to sort of try to get right. So for instance, I'm bad at maths or I'm good at maths type thing. And then even before they're even trying, they've, they're, they've kind of given up or they're looking for reasons to confirm why they're bad at maths. And so this whole mindset, another way of looking at it was this growth mindset versus fixed mindset, which we've talked a lot about mm. in the past. Yeah. So growth yeah. mindset is... Okay, well, I didn't do well on the math test, but that's because I didn't try hard enough. And if I try harder, I can learn and improve in the future. Fixed mindset is, well, I'm not good at maths, so I'm not going to try. And then they sort of have this idea that, you know, you can't necessarily grow. And so maths becomes stressful. So, you know, you go into class and there's oh, anxiety. I'm not good at this. Uh-oh, uh-oh, you know. And that's mm. just the kind of mindset which is causing perhaps unnecessary stress. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so... Applying this notion of abundance or, I guess, scarcity, it's one extra layer I like to put on top of it is making sure that you're still um, based in reality. Uh, because if you are, I guess, applying yourself too much to this idea of abundance, but you're not, uh, I guess, in line with or in tune with nature, as uh, Epictetus would uh you know, argue that you, yeah, you pronounced it right. <laughs> um, would would uh, suggest that you need to be. Then you could probably say that you're in a state of delusional. <laughs> you're you're being deluded because you're not actually uh, um, putting in the right steps to you know make yourself grow. You're just convincing yourself of something that's otherwise not entirely accurate. Um, but it's also the same thing for um, a scarcity mindset. If you're uh, aligned with reality, then you're not going to do anything to change that reality. So it has this dual effect where like, you want to make sure that you have an abundant mindset because that gives you the internal tool that you need um, to grow. But having it um, aligned with reality means that you can then apply that in the real world. And then you can actually um, put forward a, a, set of, uh, a series of steps in order for you to make sure that you can actually grow as a person. Yeah, um, so I thought we might, might try to get on things like, have you changed the way that you respond to anything? So for instance, things that used to stress you, and have you changed the way that you respond to them? And you know now they don't stress you. Um, so I'll give you an example. Um, if there was, for me, um, you know, somebody at work, and they had a different point of view to something, then it used to be, oh, maybe they're going to show how my idea is wrong. And I'm going to look not very smart. Mm. Um, and so it's just like my ego is about to get a you know, big hit, is it? So then you kind of get defensive and you try to, um, you know, defend your point of view because you don't want to be made to look stupid. Um, and I've fundamentally changed that to the motivation being different, which is now you don't learn much or, 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 you know, if you, someone has the same opinion as you. But if someone has a different opinion, it's an opportunity mm. to learn. Mm. And we talked about this ages ago, not ages ago, but one of the podcasts, there's two sorts of things, facts and ideas. Fact, Duncan is 34. Idea, you know, how does Duncan live a good life? Don't know. 
And so if somebody, um, you know, I have an idea, but it's, it's not necessarily right. Like, you know, it's never going to be perfect. It's just always going to be an evolving thing. So it's not really a point of discussing whether I'm 34 or not. Like, it's just not, you know, it is. But how do we, for instance, make a better podcast? James and I can discuss. And so if we have a point of difference or if we have a point of difference about how we should build a resource for schools, that's an opportunity to learn. And so I get really excited now when someone's like, oh, hold up, you know, blah, 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 this. And I'm like, yes. And so instead of it being, you know, you know the goal is not someone's right and someone's wrong. The goal is mm. learning. Yeah. And when someone disagrees with you, it's an opportunity to learn. So something that used to perhaps get me stressed is now, hell yes, it's energizing. So instead of being draining, it's energizing. Yeah. Um, like that um, in, incredibly important, um, something that I have really, really... I guess, utilize to shift how I approach particular challenges or how I approach um, the, the discussion and the sharing of ideas. Um, and I think, you know, as you pointed out in school today, we're, we're taught about right and wrong, not how to think. And how to think is, is like, um, in my mind, like foundational to how your mind uh, um, responds to stressful situations. Uh, and so to your point, Duncan, like at the, uh, for me at in, you know, in my work environment, uh, any opportunity to have a battle of ideas, which uh, years ago would have seemed like an incredibly intimidating and stressful thing because you're putting your idea out there to be criticized, is now energizing. Because um, the first thing I realized that I was doing was I tie my identity to my idea. So if someone mm -hmm. criticized my idea, that I would take that as a personal insult. Yeah. Um, and that was very, very um, overwhelming for me. But now I'm seeing this completely separate to that. And that if I put out an idea and somebody, you know, said, well, you know, here are some weaknesses to that idea or have you considered this, that to you, to what you said, that's an opportunity to strengthen that idea. And if that what works for me, if we can have a collective understanding of that, what we do to each other's ideas, then the best idea should prevail. Um, and so it goes from a very, very taxing and intimidating situation to that one that's quite energizing and uplifting because the best idea should hopefully um, peter out, well, not peter, um, lift itself out from the rest of them. Totally. Um, so another one, this is slightly different. If I was driving somewhere and there was traffic, let's say, I, I don't know, I drive to work sometimes um, and then driving home and there's traffic i would be getting annoyed like you know this is the traffic jam and getting stressed and you know then someone might you know push in get they've indicated and they've cut in line and then i was like you 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 know not nice person and then i realized like hang on why do i want to get home so that i can sit down and what am i doing right now i'm sitting down and when i sit down what do i want to do maybe i'll listen to some music what am I doing now? I'm listening to music. Maybe I'll listen to a podcast. What am I doing now? I'm listening to a podcast. Is my car seat really comfortable? I don't know about you, but like car seats are super comfortable. Like they've thought about this stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. So hang on. I'm getting annoyed. Like if I was getting to be late to be somewhere, fine. But if I'm not going to be late, I was just arbitrarily getting annoyed. And mm. all I was wanting to do when I got home was what I was doing in the car. And I was like, well, I wanted to get home to relax. But I was just going to sit and listen to music and I can do that in the car. And so mm. I was like, what the hell are you getting annoyed? And annoyed there was stress, you know, mm. this is ridiculous. Absolutely. And so I was like, yeah, honestly, also my car seat, way more comfortable than my couch at home. Yeah. So, I'm like, this is actually, <laughs> so when I got home, I just stay sitting in the car, you know? <laughs> 
Um, but that um, that is so true, though. Um, and it's another Stoic thought that um, that the uh, the original Stoics would uh, uh, Zeno, I think, would try and teach, which was relinquish the attachment that you have to anything and everything that is outside of your control and focus only on the things that you can control. And what they would argue is the only thing you can control are your own thoughts and actions. Uh, and so uh, given in a more uh, modern context, the example of exactly that, of being cut off by a car in traffic, um, uh, was expressed. And by way of doing that, you know, by getting upset at someone in another car who you have no social contract with is an exercise in futility because there was no control that you had over that uh, environment. You know, you, they don't have any uh, reason to expect that to honor your autonomy. Um, so why bother getting yourself worked up over that? Why bother getting stressed over that? Because that's not something that you can control. Uh, and I think that's exactly to your point, Duncan, is that as soon as you stop um, externalizing those and start focusing on, well, what is it that I actually want? Um, and am I, you know, and how can I bring my awareness to whether I'm getting that or not? And so you yourself suddenly became aware that what I really want is actually right here. I can sit in my comfy car seat and listen to whatever podcast or song I want. Um, like that's another form of abundance. It's like <laughs> we're only just recently able to listen to whatever we want, wherever we want. Like it used to have to require a trip to um, the CD shop or, um, you know, even more archaic technology than that. Um, so it's having that realization and shifting it from always reacting to environmental conditions or factors that are outside of your control, which will always condition yourself to being uh, disappointed or in a state of stress because you can't control those factors. Um, it's a very, very powerful tool. Hmm. Um, one of the things I thought we might go back to is post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic growth. So hmm. if you're like me, some things in your life will not go well. And <laughs> what can happen is you can just leave them there or you can try to think, what is the learning in this thing? So there are two things I try to do. I try to understand, okay, well, you know, so if you're working with two people, one person is a good person and one is a bad person, both can be your teacher, what to do and what not to do. And so out of the things that don't go well, there's a lesson. And you, you know, you want to learn what that lesson is. You don't want to just not know what it is and have it occur again. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we do um, at work, if there's a project, so there's three sizes, small, medium and large. And for medium and large, you have to write a review at the end. And invariably, in most projects, there's going to be something, some things that went well and some things didn't go well. And then you write about them and then you can crystallize the learning so much more. And then you put a system in place so that you can then have more of that good thing or avoid that bad thing. And so what this means is that then when you think about that event again in the future, you don't think of it necessarily in a bad light, even if it was a bad thing. You think, oh, yeah, we learned some stuff from this. So the chance of that happening is hopefully significantly lower than what it was before. So what I found is that doing that at work was a great idea. I was like, why don't you do it the rest of my life? <laughs> and so, yeah, like things will not go well. But if you do not learn from them, then you're probably going to have them happen far more often than you would like. And looking at things that don't go well isn't painful if you can actually try to get the learning out of it and then put something in place to avoid that learning. It's actually energizing. Mm. So I used to be like, oh, a painful thing occurred. Don't think about it. No, but that's not doing, or at least in my mind, you know, helping you avoid that again. You're just going to have more of that painful thing occur. 
than if you were like, yeah, okay, well, how do we stop it from occurring? So pain plus perfection equals progress. Yeah, you get a principle out of that. Yeah, uh, yeah so that's exactly right. So um, uh, so this is a, a saying championed by Ray Dalio, um, who wrote a seminal, awesome book called Principles. And it basically uh, to that very point that by going through a, a, a period of pain or particular challenge um, or anything that can cause stress, if you take the time to reflect on what happened and what you did to get through it or whatever solution that you derived from it, that's the process that Ray would use um, in general to derive a principle that he could see as a repeatable truth going forward. Um, and so that, um, so to, for, for me, that was actually a really big um, nugget of learning because I never actually thought, well, how, do, how does one go about creating principles? <laughs> like, um, you know, how, how am I to decide or to know what is something that could be a repeatable truth for my team or for, um, you know, people in general, so to speak. But if you do go through those problems or those challenges together, then you can collectively decide, right, well, here's something that we learned from that. And if we turn this into a principle that may just be relevant to us, but that's still okay, then that's something that you can actually build on top of uh, and benefit from. So I actually had a saying when I was really young, I didn't realize it was applied to this, but I used to always say, uh, you should seek to benefit from all your experiences. If they don't make you happier, they can at least make you a little bit wiser. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a silver lining in everything. Um, but you've got to find it. At least for me, it doesn't <laughs> typically give itself up. It's like, here we go. Here's the win. You know. So, but I find the process of trying to find these things really energizing and fun. And so, you you basically get better at being able to explain what happened if you try. Um, mm. The mm. only way I know how to get better is practice. <laughs> um, and so, if you're trying to, oh, what happened here? And so, one of the key things is to look at for the root cause, not the proximate cause. So, the root cause, is like what actually got to this. Mm. And then be like, ah, okay, well, that means this is it. Because often I found that in the past I was treating the proximate cause. And this is like a blog from Farnham Street. Um, and that means that you, you might take a Panadol, but when the Panadol goes away, um, the headache comes back. So it's just, it's just a temporary relief. It's not actually fixing the real problem. Yeah. And so if you are able to go through, because, um, yeah, again, uh, I'm presuming, you know, like me and James, there's going to be plenty of things that don't go well in your life. But that doesn't mean they have to be actually bad things. So if you can look at these things that went bad in the past, but you can then learn from them, they don't seem bad to you. When you think of them, they're energizing. Yeah. And this fundamentally changes. So you just don't worry about the past, and then you get more positive about the future. Because the past has had good and bad things, but over time they've ended up being good things mm. because of the bad things you learn from, mm. then you're not worried about bad things happening in the future. Of course, there are going to be bad things happen in the future. Yeah. But you're going to get through them. You're going to learn from them. And life's going to be hopefully two steps forward, one step back. Yeah. Um, so what some uh, modern day philosophers uh, will espouse is that uh, in objective reality or in nature, they would say there is no good or bad. There is only your subjective view that you apply to a given um, event that makes it seem good or bad. But mm. then they say you can put a lens across how you envision that to see whether that was a good or bad experience. Um, I think it was the skeptics who said, um, you know, time doesn't heal all wounds, but time will tell. So withhold your judgment uh, because you don't actually know how it's going to play out in the end. Like you may have lost your job um, and think that that was a very bad thing. 
um, but you don't realize until six months down the line um, that it led you to getting an even better job <laughs> that that had to happen for you to be in this much better situation. Uh, you know, as Steve Jobs would um, famously say, you can only connect the dots going backwards. Um, but that is another practice of mindset by saying that if I can allow myself to see the good or to see the benefit in whatever stressful situation I'm currently in or have just been through, then you can actually get a positive experience from that. Yeah, I mean, so maybe one more question then we'll do a summary. Um, I'll ask you this, James, and then I'll maybe answer first because I just try to think about it. Like, are you more, less, or the same amount of stressed that you were, say, three years ago? Now, James didn't have, or I think your <laughs> oldest child is three in a bit, so maybe that's a little bit different. Um, but for me, I think I've become far more aware mm. of when I am stressed or not. I didn't used to sort of try to think about it. I was just like, I want to do this, not how do I go about doing it? And I've been thinking far more about, you know, the inputs partially determine or, you know, do, do determine the outputs and you want to have happy inputs. Yeah. And it, what didn't used to be a goal of mine to try to have the most, you know, low stress enjoyable. So it's not like maybe it's useless. Like I do still want to get things done and there's like a healthy amount of like, you know, pushing. Um, but I used to not try to do that. And so I've been trying to do that at work, in other relationships, uh, you know, so other ones, you know, it's just like let's have a laugh and a giggle. And so... As I've been trying to think about optimizing my mindset, mm. e.g. not stress, e.g. growth mindset, e.g. abundance, you know, on and on and on, I've been able to slowly make progress. And so I think that I am. Um, yeah. But be only because I've been trying. Do you yeah. think you're more or less stressed, James? All right. So um, to, to give you a different vector, I think there, is a, um, there can be a very strong correlation between stress and growth. <laughs> and the last three years has been a period of significant growth for me. Right? So, um, like in terms of what happens when you grow, you're in a perpetual state of um, different environments, and what that does to you can have an effect on your, um, you know, your cognitive ability to respond to it. So to your point, Duncan, or to your question, sorry, um, <laughs> what I do think is that I am uh, exponentially more aware of mm, my level of stress. Um, and I think I'm exponentially more adept at managing it. Not just managing in terms of coping, but managing in terms of using it as a tool to further my growth. So to like just build on top of it, right? Um, so, you know, like they say, success begets more success. Um, it's kind of a symptomatic uh, statement of saying, like, well, growth begets more growth if you can use it as a stepping stone on top of each other. Um, so by bringing my awareness, by having the internal and the environmental tools to deal with it, I think I'm a far better person uh, in dealing with those um, environments. If I can just give one last anecdotal example. In work today... <laughs> There will be situations where people will get very quickly overwhelmed because you have a particular fire that needs to be put out or some burning platform. And I'll think to myself, this is nothing compared to what I have dealt with in the past um, when you've had no sleep and you've got children who are sick or et cetera, et cetera. And so I can just be stock and cognitively, consciously take stock of how much more capable I am in stressful situations than I were previously. 
Yeah, that's a good one. I think they say life doesn't get easier, you get better at it. That's it. That's well, sometimes you get better at it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that um, you can hopefully take a minute to stop. That's one of the key things I find is that when I don't take a minute to stop, then I can get into like frenzy mode. And yeah. frenzy mode is just a way for myself to be stressed and stress other people unnecessarily. So yeah. being able to have a bit of a time to stop and observe what's going on and then st start, you know, stop the flyer before it kicks into like, you know, frenzy mode, it's good. Yeah. All right, summary town. Um, I think it's pretty obvious. Like stress is not good, and it doesn't just mean distress. That you get sick. Um, oh yeah, distress. You don't you don't get sick physically or you know mentally unwell. It significantly lowers your cognitive ability. Whether this is creativity, whether this is output, you know, learning. This is so it's just it's bad, right? But it's not just going to be a product, in my opinion, of what happens to you in the world. So first of all, you need to figure out if you are stressed, and if you're like me. That's not necessarily easy. <laughs> um, so <laughs> there's there's tests you can do, like um, the saliva and the air test and the DAS test. And there's also third-party stress signals, um, you know, am I sleeping well and asking friends. But then also we can talk about changing how you respond to the world and changing your mindset. And so I think that, at least I believe, and hey, my mind has lied to me in the past, so perhaps it's lying to me right now, that I'm more you know aware of when I'm stressed and I'm better at managing than I was. And my life, I think, is significantly more enjoyable because of this. Mm. Yeah. So in uh, at the start of this, the research uh, had shown that people in particular elements of financial hardship uh, can have it directly affect their cognitive ability. So what, we're, what we see here is that stress affects the brain or your ability to, to think, basically. So um, the way we see it is that stress is neither good nor bad. It's a physiological response to a change in your environment. But it's how, I guess, you decide to manage that or how you are able to manage that, whether it can particularly turn into distress or eustress. And so what are the tools that you can apply to yourself in, in order to manage that? They're the environment. You can change your environment or you can change your internal mindset. All right, so environmental changes, you can remove yourself from the stressful situation. You can... Uh, you know, utilize tools or exercises like mindfulness, meditation, uh, anything that can get you to, back to a state of calm. Uh, but it's more the internal mindset that I can see as a meta um, uh, overall approach that can give you far more, I guess, success in dealing with this in a long-term perspective. So what are those internal mindsets? Well, the first one is the, the, um, the polarity between a fixed and growth mindset or a scarcity and abundance mindset. Whether you see that this is something that is uh, immovable and unchanging or whether you can actually see this as an opportunity for further growth. And so if you can see this as an opportunity for, for further growth, then when you are in a moment of pain or discomfort, you are already looking at what you can learn from that moment in order to apply a principle or a um, unit of learning to better yourself going forward. Uh, and what that does is it shifts this um, mind, your mind around from being in a perpetual state of anxiety or um, being overwhelmed to uh, someone who can actually see these challenges as opportunities to increase your, um, you know, your ability to just take life on, basically. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that's today's episode done then. That is that was quite a mouthful. So right. <laughs> next next week, well, next episode, we are going to talk about one of our favourite modern uh, 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 intellectuals or psychologist, Jordan Peterson, and the notion of the shadow self. Cool. See you all soon. Bye. Bye.